Okay, uh, really fast, back on November the 6th. Uh, so the, you can keep track of me that way. I think we're going to go November the 6th and we're going to do November the 13th and then uh, we'll ha- end up with a time off around Thanksgiving. And so here we are off and running, maybe. October the 23rd, 2022, lecture discussion number 184 on the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Ecclesiastes, Job, Genesis 1, Genesis 3, and Genesis 15. Now today i got a, a, a Departure, as you know, I have been asked to go through this incredible debate that has waged for 400 years with respect to Calvinism, especially hyper-Calvinism or extreme Calvinism, whichever uh, word or phrase you'd like to use for that, and then uh, uh, Armenianism. And so we're going to depart a little bit in the way I've been doing it because, well, 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 it's happened. The 2022 Nobel Prize for Physics, and it gives me goosebumps to even say it. The 2022 Nobel Prize for Physics was recently awarded to Anton Zeilinger and Hélène Espect and John F. Clauser. And those are gentlemen that have been around. They were all born 10 years before me or 15 before me, so they're older gentlemen. And it was given for their experimental research into the behavior of entangled photons, or quantum entanglement, if you will. And this is, as you remember, you hope you remember, this is what quantum entanglement is what Einstein called the spooky action at a distance. And that is not a real accurate way of saying it, but it's still nonetheless what he said. and And it has been part of the debate for many, many years. Superpositions also at play in this debate. And uh, so won't today be great fun, says no one anywhere. But I think it'll be great fun. I know there's moans and groans uh, uh, abound, but uh, but I'm going to endeavor to persevere here because I think that it is extraordinary what has happened. How is this relevant to our foray into the theological muck that is irresistible grace and total inability versus resistible grace, which sometimes is labeled total ability? Uh, but most refer to this as, the, as you know, as Calvinism versus Armenianism. Uh, and, and if you've been listening to the last few lectures, you know that's where we've been for a while. Uh, um, not a while, but a couple of weeks at least. So Calvinism is a super-deterministic concept. And what that means is that all things, everything, has been predetermined. That is what they espouse. From the, the movements of a solitary blade of grass to the interactions of the entirety uh, of, the ma- of all the matter in the universe. Boiled down, Calvin, Calvinism proposes that omniscience is causation. So let me put that down. Omniscience is causation. That is the belief of Calvinism. And that is also the belief of the superdeterministic physics community. Everything has been predestined. So that's, a, that's boiled down Calvinism. Omniscience is causation. And unbeknownst to John Calvin 450 years ago when he formulated his position, he never knew, he could never conceive that Albert Einstein would come along and the majority of the physicists of the 20th century and now going into the, the next century, that he never knew that they would all agree with him. That, that creation is without any freedom at all, and speci- specifically they're going to say free will as it applies to human beings and animals. 
But then along came John. Tall, thin John. Slow walking John. Slow talking John. Here he comes. Long, lean, lanky John. And that would be John Stuart Bell who posited in 1964 what we call Bell's Inequality Theorems, also known as the weirdest theorems in all of physics. And that means Clipsidians, uh, you know, that's, you know, Clipside, were you weird before Clipside made, made you weird is, of course, one of the themes of our little operation here. And so if we have the weirdest theorem in all of physics, then obviously Clipside's got to deal with it. It's going, to, it's going to mold us together, right? Mold us together. There's no other option. We got to, We must embrace Bell's inequalities because of its weirdness. And yes, I stole uh, Lean Lanky John from Ray Stevens, 1969. Though the Coasters, believe it or not, did it in 1959, and they never get credit. Now I know, so I want to give them credit because they did it first. They wrote it, I believe. They certainly performed it first. Ray Stevens was amazing, though. Okay, the debate is the design of the totality of creation. Which model is the most correct or which model is correct? Einstein's position was significantly flawed, is significantly flawed. Einstein, Poldowski, and Rosen, called EPR, uh, admitted as much because what they had to say, in order for our system, our model to prevail or even to be functional, we rely, they thought, they had to rely on the eventual discovery of so-called hidden variables. So Einstein has this hidden variables issue. What is a hidden variable? Well, it's something that doesn't exist most of the time. They said if we keep going down a super deterministic position or locality also, it's also called locality, we're going to find that there are hidden variables out there. I should put an S on it. And so they, their position was based on that hidden, those hidden variables that would then, the so-called hidden variables would then prove superdeterminism or the illusion of free will. So that's how this all started. But now we need to know something. They have been trying to find hidden variables ever since Einstein, Podolsky, and Rosen formulated it and presented it. How many have they found? They haven't found any. Certainly, the, the, there's no physical theory of local hidden variables. Well, that means there's a variable and another variable, and they are in proximity. That's called locality. The other view says, no, there is no locality. There is no local hidden variable. We'll get into that in a minute. Or we not maybe today. I, there's only so much I can do with this before people just start shutting it off. But I want you to stick through it because it is fantastic. Uh, it is going to demonstrate something that, with regard to John Calvin and Jacobus Arminius. And this discussion is quite uh, complex. I'll give you just a partial list of necessary subjects that you have to have some grasp of. Uh, just a basic understanding, for example. One of those is locality and non-locality. Uh, and there's this establishing the violation of Bell's inequality. There's a violation to Bell's inequality theorem, and we have to understand what it is and how it works. Then we have the probabilistic behavior of the subatomic particles. In other words, we can predict things. We can say there's this probability, but we can never know what's happening, certainly with regard to their location. And you might remember interferometry where everything has a wave function. Uh, 
versus a linear function, and then we have to deal with angular momentum and instantaneity, Schrodinger's equation, and that's just to start knowing what's going on here. Now, I realize that people are just going to go, oh, forget it. But I can do it. I really can. I can get you to get it. It's not that as hard as you think. Uh, and so, <laughs> but again, I've just just scratched the surface. I'm just that's the beginning of the issue. And because I I have in my hand here, I have the whole most holy dry erase marker. If I got to choose one of these things that that, that has the most significance, I would choose wave function as the starting point. Every system that you can discover in the universe, in all of creation, is a wave system. It's not a linear system. It's not a particle system. It's a wave system. Therefore, every system is froth and has, embed, froth and has embedded in it randomness because it's a wave. Just start beginning to understand the, the implications of a waveform. Now, that's a, a sine wave. You, you will see it done this way with regard to matter. There's no x-axis issue. I can barely say x-axis. Every system is a wave system. Everything is a wave system. A rock is a wave system. Uh, and again, it, embedded in all systems is this randomness, this uncertainty, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. And this ultimately is Copenhagen, the school of Copenhagen versus Einstein, uh, Bohr versus Einstein. Heisenberg did not insert uncertainty. He postulated that it was so, as did de Broglie. De Broglie, 1927-1929, he said all particles have wave behaviors. And so if it's a linear behavior, for example, if I have a linear scale and I want to know where a particle is, I can predict if it's all linear, I can predict where that part particle is going to be based on how far it travels in one second, for example, or 10 seconds or a minute. If I know how, what the rate of velocity is, then I can predict exactly where it's going to be and I can find it where it's supposed to be if it's linear. But nothing is linear. It's all a wave function. Everything is, moves in waves. Everything is in motion in the entire creation. Everything. You think, think some things are not in motion, but they are in motion at the particle or subatomic level. Okay? The boiled down essence of this is that quantum physics is excellent at predicting what is happening in the creation. But Einstein's hidden variables doesn't predict a thing. It doesn't work. One works, one doesn't. And I submit that this wave function is not the act of, of, how do we put it, happenstance. The wave function, the fact that everything, this, this marker is in motion at its particle level. And it's in, wa it's in a wave function, so we can't predict where the particles that are inside this or the microphone or the books or anything. Me, we can't predict where those particles will be at any time. We can't. There's an uncertainty. Again, randomness here. 
and it's my position, as you know, theologically, the implications of the theology here is incredible. This wave function, somebody had to to set everything in motion, and we, we get the understanding of who did that in Genesis 1, right? Okay, that's why he calls himself the Word. Because he causes everything to go in motion. Everything is in a static position, and then he puts it in motion. And again, I've made the comment many times that he can see things back in in motionlessness, right? He has that ability. So the question is, is he installed, God installed a wave function. He installed uncertainty. He installed randomness. And he installed, therefore, what? Freedom. He embedded it. Why would he do that? And I submit that the obvious is obvious. Einstein was convinced that the speed of light was inviolable. You can't be faster than the speed of light. Did you see today, or maybe it was yesterday, where they decided that black holes are emitting things? Yeah. So it used to be nothing could escape from a black hole, and now black holes are like volcanoes. They're spewing stuff everywhere. Uh Uh-oh. They're not singularities anymore. Singularities would be an infinite device. the, The fact that they're volcanic and the way they spew out material means that they're no longer infinite. They're no longer a singularity. So we don't know anything. We think we know something, but we don't. We really don't. But again, Einstein said that the speed of light was not, is not possible to be faster than the speed of light. I will spend some time explaining why they believe that to be the case. But guess what? Entangled photons at distances that cannot be measured, distances that exceed comprehension. In other words, a photon that is at the edge of the universe, if there's such a thing, and I believe there is because it's a finite position, there's only one infinite person and he's got a, the, he, everything else is finite. We'll get to that some other day theologically, how I can prove that. But if i got a photon out there at the edge of the universe and I have a photon in this living room, that distance is ridiculous. And they will, they will communicate instantaneously. They instantly respond to one another. The speed of light is not instant. E equals mc squared. The speed of light has a rate, a velocity. I, I should interject something that will just make people mad. Kurt Renshaw proposed in his theory of light, he proposed a, long, a while back, five, ten years ago. Excuse me. Something stuck in there. Um, that light has multiple speeds. In other words, we can, we're puny little humans, so we have decided that that is the speed of light, but there could be ten more speeds of light that we can't even recognize. We can't measure them. We can barely measure the one we got. Well, if they, if one thing for sure is we don't know enough about light to begin making decisions like it's inviolable. I've I've always long advanced that light is not just particle based. It's a person. And he says who he is. And he says, I am the primable light. I need to put that on the board because people don't hear it right. It's primable. Not prime evil. It's primable. Which means that it's the first light. There is no other light before that light. 
And he says that he is the light of life. And now that, the light of life, is the primable light, and that is not a particle-based system. It's non-particle. The photon light, that is particle light. That is not the person of life, or the light of life, John 8.12, Genesis 1.3. Jesus Christ, Revelation 1.14, Daniel 7.9, 7.22, Matthew 17. All of those are pictures of the primable light, the non-particle light. So light is a person, it's also a thing. But it isn't, he is not the thing, and the thing is not him. And that needs to be importantly understood. Resist the temptation to commingle the two lights. And, and I'll agree, Genesis 1.16, what does he say? I put two great lights, didn't he? One is the great light, the other is the, is the lesser light. The greater and the lesser the sun and the moon. He says right there in 116 of Genesis that there are two lights. And I'm saying the same thing. There are two lights. There's the photon light and then there's the non-particle light, the primable light. Okay? <coughs> Excuse me. Where, where am I now? Zeilinger, Aspect and Clauser, received the 2022 Nobel Prize for Physics for doing something fantastic. They disproved Einstein's hidden variable theory. They ruined superdeterminism. They discredited the hidden variable hope. This was a fudge factor. We don't know how it works, so we think there's something out there that will make it work. Well, there is nothing out there to make it work. And Zeilinger, Aspect, and Clauser, again, they get the Nobel Prize for 2022, for saying that Einstein was wrong, Einstein, Podolsky, and Rosen, which means superdeterminism now is in trouble in the physics community. They're ruining it. They discredited it. That great hope. And so when I start thinking of superdeterminists, who do I think of theologically? That's right, the hyper-Calvinists. That's what they think. They don't understand that the entire creation is random and in motion, and somebody did that. Now, you've got to give John uh, Calvin some dispensation. There is no way that he understood particle physics in 400 years ago. There's just no possibility. They thought things were just things, but they're not. Everything, again, every system, no matter what system it is, from a rock to a galaxy, it's all in motion. Every particle in it is a wave particle. So this is the question. How can there be this innate, ingrained, elemental freedom with every particle? You cannot know where those particles are going. You cannot determine their position. You only can have probabilistic positions on it. They are something that you can predict. And you can say that's the most probable one, but you can never know. You can't know. Does that sound like Goodell's uh, incompleteness theorems? Absolutely. We're back to you can't know. It's unknowable. So how is this unknowability, this wave function, all this motion, how is it that it's this freedom, elemental freedom, in every single particle in all of the universe, the physical reality, how did it get here? How does it happen? Is it just happenstance? It cannot be. It absolutely can't. What's the purpose of all of this motion? What's the message? What's the theological implications of this? And as you know, Max Planck 
re resolved this 1944. He understood it because he's the father of quantum physics. He recognized that there's this this pulsing motion inside of things. And he said this, Consciousness I regard as a fundamental. I regard all matter as derivative from a consciousness. Everything that exists postulates a consciousness. And he entitled that the speech that includes that quote, The Nature of Matter. He recognized that, okay, Matter is moving. All of it is moving at the particle level. And the only thing that could ha make that happen is a conscious mind. Matter has a nature. What's the obvious question? Whose nature is it? Again, what are the philosophical, theological implications of this design of matter, especially all of the evidences that testify of instantaneous communication between two entangled electrons or photons traveling across enormous, almost boundless distances. Those are instantaneously communicating. So I have, let me put it this way, I have this incredible distance and I have two things communicating instantly. So much faster than the speed of light we can't even begin to assess it. Why, the, why is this the design? See, that's the why question. Always the why question. Why is this the way he's done it? What's the purpose? How is it accomplished? What is the, what is the nature of all of this motion? Again, there's a, let me just ask this question. We are in the theology field. And therefore, in the philosophical field as well. And we deal, we deal with the metaphysical, the non-physical. What do we call the metaphysical? We call it the spiritual. What spiritual theological precept has the representation of what I have just described? Vast distances and instantaneousness. What, what, what in the theological... Uh, subset has this kind of representation to it, the characteristic. And, and hopefully, if I have done my job, which remains in doubt, people in the vast internet audience now are screaming. Um, so, and I hope that somebody in the vast internet audience remembers that a few lectures back, I seemingly diverted in an uncoordinated, disordered approach to what, what, in other words, what we call normal here. Right, I diverted, diverted into something. Do you remember? No, you don't. I'll have to tell you. It's Matthew 6. Remember when I went into Matthew 6? Yes. The Lord's Prayer. I said, okay, we're going to go into the Lord's Prayer. Now, why would I do that? It seemed like there's no reason that I would do that unless I was going to get into this subject of entanglement, instantaneous communication over vast distances. What is the theological complement is what I'm asking. But I did mostly, uh, I did Matthew 6 primarily, but there's Matthew 5, 45 through 48, and that was the Lord's Prayer lecture. And I started out by saying, the Father in heaven. What's the obvious question? Where's heaven? How far away is heaven? And he, and Christ says, pray like this. What is that? Never mind, I'll keep going. 
The Father who is in His secret place, the secret place, who sees in secret. Do not pray. Do not use the repetitive gibberish of the heathen is what Christ says. Don't do that. Therefore, do not be like them. For your Father knows the things you need. Matthew 6, 8. If He knows the things you need, then He knows the things you don't need. And you need, you, you need to not ask Him for what you don't need. Try to ask Him for what you need because you will get what you need, but you, you won't get what you don't need. Lots of things we don't need. Most of the things we don't need. The immediate obvious question, what do we need? Better question, who do we need? Right? But for today, Matthew 6 outlines the basis for humanity which is in a fallen state to do something. What is it that he asks us to do in our fallen state? He asks us to communicate, does he not? So communication. Here the entire creation communicates and is in a wave function, has all of this randomness, all of this freedom, all of this uncertainty. And what else is like that? That's the particle level, the subatomic level. What's at the, what we would call the physical level? Anyway, so even though we're in a fallen state, uh, nonetheless, our, our Creator wills that none should perish. Remember? 2 Peter 3.9. Here's the key question. How fast is prayer? What distance does it travel? How fast is it? How fast are you communicated with? How fast do you communicate? 1 Thessalonians 5.16-17 Pray without ceasing and everything. Give thanks for this is the will. The will. Let me repeat. The will of God in Christ Jesus. God has a will. So who put all of this in motion? Max Planck was right. The, the willfulness of the consciousness that is at the basis of everything. Why does God, Christ Jesus, want constant communication from mankind? We're in a fallen state. Again, Second Peter 3.9, wills that none should perish. Joel 2.32, Romans 10.13, For whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Shall be saved. Boom, shakalakalaka. There is no equivocation there. Cry out the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You will be saved. There is no other opportunity for anything but that. Salvation. Romans 10.11-12, Whoever believes, whoever believes, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Joel 2.30. I'm sorry, 2.26. And there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile or Greek, Jew and Greek. You know, we Hebrew and Greek, Old and New Testament, right? Romans 2.11, there is no partiality with God. And there is unceasing communication. We are in sin Duh. In case you were wondering. And you're not able to, you don't have a mirror. And you have no self-assessment and you have no introspection. Let me help you. We, all of us, you, me, we, they, them, are in sin. We're sinful. Therefore, we're estranged. We're separated from the perfect holy God. And that is why he says the perfect comes. This is the perfect come that comes. He gave us himself in a book form so that we could do what? Figure out what he says. We can, we can, we can listen to him. He told us what he's thinking, how he's thinking, why he's thinking it. 
and at the same time we can communicate back. So there is this instant, unending, intelligent, informational transmission going on in prayer. It is exactly what we would expect because that is what entanglement is. It's all the same thing. I could have said there's this instant, unending, intelligent information transmission in quantum entanglement theory. Quantum entanglement theory and prayer theory are the same thing. How isn't that amazing? And it's not just with humanity but it's with all of creation. He built it into the system. Every system is a wave function. And all of that to point out, he would have the same access, the same conditions with his animals and his angels. He'd be doing it the same way because they will come here and he will communicate with them instantaneously. Over how great a distance between the third heaven and the earth. How great is that distance? And when a child, as you've heard me say, when a child perishes, dies physically, where, where does it go instantly? Again, entanglement, right? It does what it's, what it's been described to do. All of the realms, all of the kingdoms, the human, the animal, the angelic kingdoms have their conversations with God. Mark 1, Matthew 4, Luke 4. How do you begin a conversation? You're going to say a word to me. Pick a word. Just pick one. Hi is a great word. How did you pick that word? Was it imposed upon you? Were you predetermined to say hi? How do you know that? See, conversation, prayer is impossible. He says, pray unceasingly. He tells you that you can pray. What is prayer? Prayer is a function of what? Of free will. If it's not free will, if it's, if it's something that he has instilled in you, then it's him speaking to himself. That can't be so. So prayer is exactly what you said. It is a, an extension of your free will. It's attached to your free will. Conversation is. And so be assured, all of you, or to expect, I expect you to have a basic comprehension of the violation of Bell's inequalities when we're all done. You'll be okay. You'll do it. It's not that tough. There'll be a test on Friday. Okay. That's enough of that. Moving along now by going backwards. October 9th, 2022, lecture discussion number 183, pretty much principally concluded with the Pharisees' latest incompetent scheme. If you remember, the Pharisees had an incompetent scheme, Matthew 22, 34 through 36. And Matthew 22, 34 through 36 is immediately subsequent to the humiliation of the Sadducees. So the Pharisees got to see the humiliation of the Sadducees, and they were tormented by the Sadducees, who constantly said the same thing to them over and over and over again, and the question was unanswerable. The Sadducees' argument, uh, uh, I'll get to that in a minute, just, but, but first, sometimes Matthew 22, 29 through 33 is, is called the silencing of the Sadducees because it shut them up. They had been, they had been speaking about <coughs> a certain particular position and they just did it constantly, much to the dismay because the Pharisees could, Pharisees, oh, you thank you. The Pharisees could never solve it. So they don't think Christ can solve it. 
Sadducees are confident that Christ could not solve that. They were going to mock him like they had always mocked the Pharisees. But Christ did answer that. The Sadducees' argument was that the Mosaic Law, the writings of Moses, had no references at all to eternal life resurrection. There was none. No references. And Christ, they came to Christ. Infinite God in the flesh. They didn't know that, John 1, 1 through 4. He forever and unconditionally wrecked, ruined, obliterated the Sadducees' position. Just destroyed it. It's gone. That position no longer is even considered. It was just completely massacred. They said that there was no resurrection of the dead in the Pentateuch. Christ said, oh yes, there is. And he was right. Of course he's right. He wrote it. He would know where it is. Similarly is the evolutionary atheistic philosophy of the 20th century. You can compare the two. The evolutionists are going around, evolution, evolution, evolution. There's no evolution. There is no freedom of will. There is no, there's nothing. There's no consciousness. There's nothing. Consciousness is emerging from the brain, not the other way around. Blah, blah, blah. They've been saying it for since Darwin. And nobody's been able to shut them up. They're just like the Sadducees. Somebody's going to shut them up. And the beginning of that was the Nobel 2022 Physics Prize. Anyway, Christ insults the Sadducees. He says, you are mistaken. You don't know. You're not knowing the Scriptures or the power of God. You don't know the Scriptures and you don't know the power and the character and the loving kindness of God. You don't understand God at all. You have no knowledge of what kind of person He is whatsoever. You're completely wrong. Essentially, you Sadducees are completely oblivious. You're deaf. You're blind to the obvious. And then He went on to say, the I am that I am of Exodus 3.6 and 3.14 is in the present tense. And the multitude... He said this. He said the I am proves and proves that resurrection. John eleven twenty five proves resurrection. And the Sadducees did not comprehend what he said. They didn't understand what he meant. The multitude was absolutely stunned. They were shocked. The Sadducees, I'm sorry, the Sadducees were stripped naked of their beloved doctrine, and Jesus God just threw it in the trash fire. And pretty much that was the first dumpster fire. And Theological history. Blew them up. The point is, you appoint. The Sadducees likely disbanded. Now, there's some positions out there that the Sadducees actually had a uh, a moment here. And there's a position that they were involved in the Dead Sea Scrolls, which is possible. I think that position has uh, strength. But the Sadducees were humiliated. They were lack. They likely dis- They certainly started hiding, and they were mocked. As much mocking as they had done, the mocking came right back at them. Imagine the evolutionists of our time. Imagine if they got on worldwide television, for example, or radio or any medium, and they were humiliated. Somebody absolutely disproves evolutionary theory and philosophy and atheism. They would be mocked. Every university professor, every biologist, everybody that has ever expounded that stuff would have to hide. That's going to happen. The rocks will cry out. It's something on the horizon coming soon. Christ is going to repeat the pattern. 
That's how he works. Anyway, the Pharisees witnessed the crushing of the Sadducees. And, of course, they all ran away in horror also, realizing that their fate was upon them, that they're the next man up. They were going to be slaughtered too. No, that's not what they did. These, these are, they, they, they said, okay, slaughter the Sadducees, something that we've never been able to do, but we're going to launch our little trap. We have a trap. The Pharisees be nothing if not stupid. They attack the omnipotent God. They don't know it's the omnipotent God. So they don't know the power of God. The power of God is standing right in front. You don't know the scriptures and you don't even know who I am. That's what he said. So the power of God is standing there and they attack the omnipotent power of God with their latest committee agreed upon machination and then start thinking like uh, Wiley E. Coyote or Pinky in the Brain. That's what we're dealing with here. Okay. This time, the trap was Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Now, they probably didn't know that. They didn't realize... That's what's going to happen to them. If they had known it, maybe it would have deterred them, but I doubt it. But it's, it, the trap is a, in the context of Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, Deuteronomy 10, 12, through 13, and Deuteronomy 36. But again, the coyote Pharisees had no idea that the claymore mine that they were standing on is Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5. They didn't know. They ask God himself, not knowing, again, just like the Sadducees. They, he, he tells the Sadducees, you don't know who I am. You don't know the power of God. And they, they Pharisees don't know that that's God themselves, himself either. Not knowing it's God himself. They ask God himself a Bible question. They ask him a question out of what he wrote. So effectively, collectively, they think the word himself hasn't read his own word. We call that a bad start. Teacher, they say, which is the great commandment in the law? They, they sprung their trap. Crap. So it's what we call a crap trap. They spring it. Or to rephrase their question so you can understand the, the, the current uh, way we would phrase this. Which verse in the Old Testament Pentateuch is the greatest verse? They have one already pre-selected that they think is the greatest verse. And then they have about 15 or 20 others that they think is the greatest verse. And Christ was going to choose one and they're going to be able to say, well, what about, what about, what about, what about? Never occurred to them that Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5 can't be what about it. Christ's answer, of course, was Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, Deuteronomy 10, 13, Deuteronomy 36, you shall love your God. I'll stop with those five words. And we could stop with just those five, five words. You shall love your God. And you've heard me talk about that. If love, what is love? How does love originate inside of a person or an animal? What is it? What causes love to come out? And he says, God says, you have the capacity to love. Where did it come from? How did you have it? Humanity has the capacity, the capability to love. He, Christ revealed that in those five words. What is love? Where does it come from? Why is it this the great commandment? Why isn't there something better than this? Or uh, uh, This is the first one. This is the first commandment in all of the Bible. Why is it first? What's second? What's third? What's fourth? Why are they second, third, and fourth? Why aren't they first? I will promise you, 
The people do not like that, that that's the first commandment, even especially today. They have other commandments, right? That they think are more important. The Pharisees thought that Christ would choose something, anything, anything else they thought, but not this. And obviously the Pharisees, being sociopaths, narcissistic, sociopathic people that they were, they only loved themselves. And they only loved money, which is the same thing. So this commandment, the great commandment, is an anathema. It's a bane to their existence. And how are they going to argue against Deuteronomy 6.4? What commandment is superior? All the arguments will fail. I'll tell you that right now. You pick something that you think is superior to Deuteronomy 6.4 and 5, you will fail. I will destroy it. And I'm not God. You can imagine what he could do. All other commandments are subordinate to Deuteronomy 6.4. That's what Christ is saying. Every other commandment is subordinate. And, and how do I know that? How do I know that every other commandment is subordinate to that? Because Christ said so. He said this is number one. That means everything else is not number one. It's really pretty easy logic. Christ knew their thoughts he would have chosen the, the greatest commandment, duh, obviously. But you have to ask yourself, why is this the great commandment? I want you to focus on the fact that uh, he identifies that you can love and you can love your God. So now you've got to ask, how do I love my God? And my, my first response to that is, you're probably wrong in what you think is what he wants. We don't know how he thinks. Remember, his thoughts are not our thoughts. He doesn't think like us. But how are they going to argue against Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5? And they did not. Notice they did not. They knew immediately, oh no, our, our crap trap did not, not succeed. And Christ continues past those first five words. Mankind can love with all of our heart, all of our soul, and all of our mind. That's amazing. So guess what we have? We have the capacity and the capability to love, and we have a heart, we have a soul, and we have a mind. Those are all three non-physical entities. He's not talking about the cardiology, uh, the, the pump that I have, for example. He's not talking about the physical heart. The heart has different meaning to him here. There are three non-physical entities. Yet, uh, and nobody has def- definitively defined or explained what a heart is, a soul is, and a mind is, and how they're distinct, if they are distinct. I've attempted to do it, but uh, no, nobody has satisfactorily come up with this. So ask the easy questions now. Why do we have a heart? Why do we have a soul and a mind? There was intentionality here. He intended for us to have that because he wanted us to love with all of those things. So how do you do that? Again, the heart does not refer to a physical organ, but instead the, the ethereal attribute, the potential, the intangibility. Just it, It's something not physical. Why did God endow humanity, angels, and animals with this love thing? Because he did. He's the one. It's in, the matter is in the nature, right, of him. It's his nature. That God is love? Well, he gave his love. See, that's how I know that he gave his free will. Because he's got free will and he's got love. We got love. Everybody goes, oh, he gave us love. Oh, but he didn't give us will. It makes no sense. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. But he endowed animals and angels and humanity with this love thing. 
How is love activated in us? What causes love to come out? If it's predestined, if it's coerced, if it's established in us, then again, he's loving himself with his own love, right? That's your argument. If we don't have free will, then the love that he told us to give to him is his love given to us. And so we, he has, we have no love, and therefore he's just loving himself, and that's narcissism, right? So you've once again made, made God some kind of weird thing, which is not true at all. You don't know. You're a Sadducee. You don't know what you don't know. If love is coerced, it is predestined, is it love, yes or no? If I'm forcing you to love me, is that love? No, it's eliminated as love. What is it? It's me loving myself, again, to repeat that. And that's what we call, whoop, there goes another rubber tree plant in the Calvinistic realm here. How do you argue against that? You, are, you have put yourself, Calvinism has put itself in the exact same position as what occurred to the Pharisees when they asked Christ, what is the greatest commandment? And Christ responds, love. You can respond, love, when a Pharisee says to you, you have no free will, or a physicist says to you, you have no free will, then you get to say, what, what back to them? Love. Explain love. Explain why that is the greatest commandment in all of the Bible, selected out by God himself in the flesh. You're going to argue with him? You're a Sadducee Pharisee. It's not working. Start thinking about what you're saying. Obviously, love is only love if it is a function of will. And Christ says the great commandment is a testimony of our free will to love him. And all of this connects to John 17.12. John 17.12, how does God in the flesh lose Judas? How did he lose the fallen angels? What's the process? How do you become fallen? How do you become lost? Is that predestined? If I am lost and it is predestined, am I really lost? You've got to think about it. And again, they will say that you are lost from the beginning of time. Well then, why does he mourn? Again, we've been down this road before. And we'll go back through it again, but not today. But when you're talking about John 17, 12, you end up with John 19, 28, John 20, 19 through 29, Matthew 26, 48 through 50, and John 21, 15 through 23, specifically John 21, 20. John 21, 20 is spectacular. It's amazing. It answers the where does love come from question. It answers why did he give it and who gave it to us. And then, of course, when I say it answers where does love come from question, that's an HDRP intentionally poorly worded trick question because it doesn't come from a where, it comes from a who. As you know, infinity must come from infinity. If there's infinity, something must it must install infinity. Infinity is not spontaneous. Infinity comes from infinity. Consciousness must come from consciousness. Again, it doesn't emerge from anything. It comes from someone. He says that in Ecclesiastes 12. Truth from truth, life from life, time from timelessness, love from love, 1 John 4.8. John even says it, 1 John 4.8, love comes from love. How does anyone love God? What's the process of loving God? How do you, dis- how do you display your love for God? Is it crying while singing songs? Is that, is that how you do it? Is it vain repetitions? We know not, no, that's not it. Is it tithing? A lot of people think it's tithing. The only way you love God is give me money. 
How about washing feet? And some will, of course, advance that, that tithing, that money crowd. Boy, they love that. Luke 16.13 is the refutation of that, by the way. Oh! I had a good, good string there going. But uh, this is where John 20 and John 21 comes into play. He sits down at the table. These two guys, these two uh, passages. John 20, 19 through 29. This is called the belief of Thomas. Thomas says at John 20, 25, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and I put my finger into the print of the nails and I put my hand into his side, I will not believe. That's what Thomas says. I will not believe. Not believe what? What is it that he won't believe? And you might protest, and I'm sure somebody will, that John 20, 19 through 29 is the unbelief of Thomas. This is the unbelief of Thomas. And I would counter that the belief of Thomas is correct. And note the three requirements that Thomas insists upon. He has three requirements. I gotta see the print of the nails, I gotta put my finger in the print of the nail holes, and I gotta put my hand in the side of Christ. That's the three, I gotta have those three things. Give me those. I wanna know why those. But those are the ones he wanted. And, but John 20-26 is critical here. It's a critical piece in the narrative. And after eight days. Wow. And after eight days. I hope that reaches out and smacks you right across the head. Upside the head. Whooped you upside the head, I hope. Why did Christ wait eight days? Thomas says those things and then Christ waits eight days before he comes and confronts Thomas. And Thomas is called Doubting Thomas and all this stuff. Well, he waits eight days because of Luke 9.28. The transfiguration occurs after eight days. Luke 9.27 is incredible. After Luke 9.27, there's eight days to the transfiguration. Luke 9.27, I got you, thank you, is where Jesus, the God of creation, Colossians 1.15-18, the Word made flesh, John 1.1-4, says this, But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who shall not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now, who are those guys? We should know. Who were the some standing there? They didn't taste death until they saw. That's got to be a pretty comforting thing, right? I get to see the kingdom of God? Okay. Done deal. Anyway. There were eight in the Ark of, the, uh, of Noah, Genesis 7.13, right? See, if you're thinking that after eight days, well, you know, he, he just thought he'd kick around. This is God. He has a plan. He wanted to come after eight days to talk to Thomas. Why? So again, it's all there in uh, Genesis 7.13. There's a certain man of Acts 9.33 been paralyzed for eight years. He likes eight. He keeps bringing it up. Christ made his proclamation to the imprisoned angels in those eight days, 1 Peter 3.20. He sprinkled his blood of the true heavenly altar. I'm sorry, sprinkled his blood on the true heavenly altar as the initial act of his high priest office. So he's going to be the high priest. He has been the suffering servant. He's resurrected and now he's the high priest. He's prophet, high priest, and king, right? So high priest starts when he goes up there and cleanses the heavenly uh, ark, the heavenly altar. 
That's Hebrews 8, 4 through 5, John 20, 17, and Leviticus 16, 17. The eighth day is, is corresponding to the eighth millennium. I have seven 1,000 year periods, and then I have an eighth period. And that is the, that is the eternal state. That is the infinite kingdom, which is why he looks the way he looks. You can see he looks a certain way in Matthew 17, 2, and that's because he is demonstrating that after eight days, or after, yeah, after eight days, I have a different countenance. The infinite state. Anyway, Jesus knows everything Thomas is going to demand. All of his, all of his, uh, how do you put it? You have to finish these caveats. We have to get through these issues. Because he knows what Thomas does, and that Thomas wants, because, uh, He's the omniscient, omnipresent God of creation. That has great advantages. John 20, 27. And Thomas knows that Christ was not physically present, John 20, 25. Thomas said those things when Christ wasn't there. And Christ repeats Thomas's condition, conditions for belief. He repeats it to Thomas. Reach your finger here, Thomas. Look at my hands, Thomas. Reach your hand and put it into my side. And again, it's side there. Genesis 2.21, out of the side of Adam. The, the word is Selah. Out of the side of Adam, the woman was built. Out of the, out of the side of Christ, the, 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 the church age begins, if you will. And Thomas is the first one after... See, see, why does he do that? It proves something. He's proving something. He has three things. Thomas comes up with three things and Christ repeats them. Why didn't Christ come up with three other things? Why are those the three things that Christ wanted? He, he validates Thomas's uh, position here, which is really pretty incredible. And again, and as soon as he does it, he knows he Thomas knows this has proved something to Thomas. And and Thomas is the first one of the apostles to identify Christ as God Himself. You're God. And why is it that put your hand here? Look at me. Put your hand there. You know, put your finger there. Why does that do that to Thomas? Why does he go, this is God? I've talked about that. Oh, the phone, is that for me? Lori's really fast, isn't she? It's really amazing. But he's the first to identify Christ as God himself. And it says, Thomas believes. Christ says, because you have seen me, you believe. Blessed are those who have not seen me and who won't see me and they believe they're more blessed than you. So Thomas believes. Now John 21, 15 through 19, that's the complement to the belief of Thomas and it's the belief of Peter. So I got two witnesses. I got two who believe. And again, many are going to object to that. They're going to assert that it's not the belief of Peter, it's the love of people, Peter, but it's not. It's the belief of Peter. And to repeat the question, how do you love God? Because that's what comes here. Three times, maybe four times, because there's some debate here. We've got to, uh, we've uh, got to worry about whether it's three or four. Christ says he three times, but there's also a fourth in there. Go check me out. Three times, Jesus God asked Peter, Jonah, Peter Jonah, do you love me? Do you think it's arbitrary that he called him Peter Jonah? No, it's not. Peter Jonah, do you love me? And again, it says Christ asked this three times, John 21:17. But there's this pesky John 21:15, which seems to be divergent and imply there's a fourth time. Anyhow, 
Peter, as with Thomas, is not declared by Jesus to be in doctrinal compliance. Christ says you are not in doctrinal compliance. You're not accurate as to the deity of Christ until Peter announces that Christ is omniscient. Lord, you know all things, John 21:17. And as soon as he says, Lord, you know all things, <coughs> and this has got nothing to do with the words for love and the Greek and all the agape and all that nonsense because they're all completely interchangeable. They're interchanged all over the New Testament. But as soon as he says, Lord, you know all things. As soon as he says that, then, and I want you to compare now, 2028, where Thomas says, you're God, my Lord and my God. Peter says, you know all things. Lord, you know all things. So they're the same thing. They're identical in meaning. Peter says the same thing that Thomas said, which is why the two are bound together. Okay? So how do you love Jesus? How do you love God? As we should expect loving, expect loving God is inseparable from believing Him, John 11.25. Obviously, John 21.15-17 is referring to the greatest commandment. What does Christ says? Do you love God? Do you love God? Do you love God? That's what He says to Him. Well, that's, that's Deuteronomy 6.4. So that, that little... Then you add, if you will, with Peter is Deuteronomy 6.4 being demonstrated. Do you love God? Do you love God? Do you love God? How do you love God? You believe Him. What do you believe about Him? What do you believe about Christ? It's inseparable. Loving God is inseparable from believing Him, which is how and why Proverbs 120.122, that's Solomon's call to wisdom, the Holy Spirit through Solomon. How long, you simple ones, will you love simplicity and not believe Me? How long will you do that? And if you don't believe me, you're not loving me. That's what he's saying. Finally, Peter again and, and Thomas both say, God, you're God. Simple things is assumed to be a wide and varied category at Proverbs one twenty one twenty two. But I would argue that it is attached to wisdom. And I'm telling you that wisdom is attached to belief. The context being Solomon's Holy Spirit inspired Proverbs 1.7. See, that's the context of 120.122. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And he says, get wisdom, get understanding. He screams it at Proverbs 4.7. Now, I submit that the total inability doctrine and the resistible grace doctrine are Calvinism and Arminianism are both simplicity. Calvin looked at the omniscience of God and came up with a simple response. Armenian, Jacobus Arminius looked at the free will that God has given and came up with a simple response. There's no complexity. It's simplicity. They don't know. They brew it. No offense. And let's see if I can prove that on November 6th. I think they both chose the simple. And I think they left out what those things really mean. And all the implications that they they brought forth. No different than what happened to Matthew with the Sadducees and the Pharisees. That's my position. Throw your rocks now and your spoiled fruit. Let's see if I can rise up and convince you otherwise. I'm taking a good shot at it in, what, 6th of November. If I made you mad, come see me. Okay.